look, it hasn't in the in the nearly 20 years of American military experience. It's been quite recently that senior American military leaders have admitted in public that there's no military solution to the insurgency in Afghanistan. Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Major Tom Fox, your host, and that voice you just heard is Ambassador Doug Lutz, the former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, a retired three-star general in the Army, and the current McDermott Distinguished Chair of Social Sciences here at West Point. He's an alum of the department, both as a student and as a faculty member. But more importantly, he has served as a model soldier, scholar, and statesman throughout a remarkable career of service spanning over four decades. With relevant experience in CENTCOM, on the Joint Staff, with the National Security Council, and then as ambassador to NATO, there's perhaps no one better qualified to look back at our time in Afghanistan and reflect on lessons learned. We're extremely grateful to him for sitting down with our own Major A.J. Glubzinski, an assistant professor of American politics with an academic focus on development assistance in Afghanistan and two tours there of his own, to dive deep on all things Afghanistan. This interview proceeds in two parts, with the first focusing on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, and the second looking more closely at security force assistance and development assistance. Without further ado, here are Ambassador Lute and Major Lubzinski. Uh, Ambassador Lute, sir, really, really appreciate your time. Really grateful uh, to spend time in conversation and reflection on Afghanistan today. So welcome to the SOS Research Lab podcast. Extremely oh, thankful to have you. Yeah, it's good to be with you. We're recording on October the 1st, just a few days away from the start of the 20th year um, of military operations in Afghanistan, starting uh, dating back to October 7th, 2001. And we've heard almost continuously over the past year, in particular since the publication of the uh, Washington Post Afghanistan papers, the 18 or 19 year legacy of Afghanistan. Um, the popular narrative seems to lean more on time and resources wasted. Um, yet there's various accounts along the way of, of different points of optimism as well. So wanted to spend some time with you today thinking about at multiple levels, whether it's the individual or institutional level or, or doctrine level, um, about some different lessons that we might be able to gather from the past 19 years in Afghanistan. So I'm going to try to touch both the, the empirical challenges and the social science challenges and the nature of the current state of the literature and tie those in with your experience, sir. On the subject of those Afghanistan papers, I just wanted to start there um, in particular. That's definitely one area where um, we see some conflicting perceptions of, of military performance really come to the fore. So Washington Post's um, Afghanistan papers are really particularly critical of deception by um, U.S. military leaders, um, as well as civilian leaders over the kind of defense or security enterprise. Um, and I know you're... Uh, some of some of your interviews um, with SIGAR were captured in the Afghanistan papers as well. So as you reflect on U.S. military or, or defense performance, what's your perception of, of this kind of overall appraisal of military performance in the course of Afghanistan? Well, I, I think there are two basic stories coming out of the public release of the Special Inspector General's interviews. So in my case, I interviewed in 2015. I was at that time in office at NATO. Uh, as the U.S. ambassador, and this was a, this was sort of a one-on-one -on -one or maybe two-on-one interview in my office. So it was very, you know, it was a very private inside the government setting in which I participated. 
I think there are two two basic storylines. One is a storyline of skepticism about the potential for success in Afghanistan. And then the other storyline, which gained probably even more public prominence, is this notion of there was an effort to deceive, right? So there's skepticism and deception. I actually agree with the first one, that there was a persistent theme of skepticism among senior government officials, but I disagree with the notion that anybody was trying to deceive the American public. My experience over more than a decade of working both in uniform and out of uniform on Afghanistan is that the more one understands Afghanistan, and in particular, the underlying conditions in Afghanistan, the more one is skeptical of uh, any ambitious effort to re-engineer the country and its government from the outside. And I suppose that level of skepticism bleeds over into skepticism about the applicability of counterinsurgency as a doctrine in Afghanistan. Look, Afghanistan has been at war for over 40 years, not just the 20 years that we've been involved. You know, as good Americans, we tend to have a sort of a, a short-sighted view on this, a myopic view. We think about our experience, which is 20. Well, for Afghans, you have to add another 20 years onto that. So the net effect is that virtually every adult in Afghanistan has known nothing but war uh, for, for 40 years. And when we came onto the scene in 2001, Afghanistan stood as the fourth poorest country in the world. It had few institutions that worked. It was a deeply divided political setting. And Afghanistan lives in a very tough regional neighborhood. So these are not the these are not the conditions ripe for nation building. Uh, and so the skepticism reflected in the Afghan papers, I think, come from those who have studied, gone to school, maybe experienced firsthand Afghanistan and these underlying conditions. However, this notion that in face of that skepticism, uh, there was some sort of government effort to hide these conditions or to deceive the American people, I just can't abide by. If you, in fact, go back to the source documents, so presidential speeches, presidential statements, White House releases, congressional testimony, declassified intelligence reporting, I think you find a steady pattern of sober, balanced assessments of, first, why was Afghanistan important to American interests, but then second, a balancing uh, that just how tough this is going to be and what might be possible given these underlying conditions. So I think there was more of a realistic, sober assessment rather than any attempt to deceive. That's really helpful on on multiple levels. I think um, an appreciation for the longer dynamic, the, the pre-treatment conditions, so to speak, in Afghanistan um, seemed particularly important. Um, and, so, and, you know, we, we just didn't, we didn't, I think partly because of the rush to respond to 9-11, right, in the immediate weeks after 9-11, and the remoteness of Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan really wasn't on the American conscience uh, or in our, you know, sort of in our sighting immediately after 9-11. But then there was a rush to intervene. And what we found is an enormously foreign and enormously complex setting, which took us years to understand. Um, and, and really, the overall effort suffered from that lack of basic understanding. I think this is an interesting question about the the role of domestic politics, domestic perceptions and emotions in these you know, seemingly rapid response to events that, that take place. So I, 
I think this has been been consistent. What we've observed is the impact of electoral cycles on policy in Afghanistan. Namely, we have a change of policy at the start of the Obama administration, another change in policy at the start of the Trump administration. So, um, how how have you seen that have an effect, or what's the role or impact of these electoral cycles when it comes to making decisions about policy in Afghanistan? So, as you go through this, the succession of electoral cycles, right? So these didn't happen as discrete events. They happen layered on top of one another or sequentially following one another, right? I think what you see over a pattern of domestic uh, elections is a a more sober view, a more realistic view about what's possible in Afghanistan setting in and penetrating sort of the public conscience and the public level of understanding. And that more sober perspective has led gradually to a narrowing of American goals and a more realistic approach about what is possible. And then that in turn has led to a reduction of resources that the American people are willing to apply to Afghanistan. So this is not a straight line progress from ambition to caution, but it it is, I think, an undeniable pattern that over time our goals have narrowed. And the result is that as we try to align ends, ways, and means, right? The means applied to those goals have been gradually and consistently reduced over time. And that, that all gets played out in the election cycles, right? I think the big inflection point here was Obama's election in 2008 because, of course, his campaign centered on good war, bad war, right? So the good war, the justified war was the one in Afghanistan, that was originally focused on Al-Qaeda. And of course, it was Al-Qaeda that brought us 9-11. But that contrasted with the war of choice in Iraq, which was, in Obama's narrative, unnecessary. And therefore, a shift, once he was elected, from Iraq to Afghanistan. And that that really, I think, represents an important inflection point in terms of public understanding. But once Obama's in office, through his eight years, and through now the Trump three and a half years, you see this steady pattern of a sober assessment of what's possible, a gradual reduction of objectives or a diminishment and narrowing of objectives, and gradually over time, a reduction in resources. And that's largely driven by being answerable to the American public by way of the election cycles. Absolutely. So I think all of that, the combination of the Afghan environment and this legacy of conflict over the long term, um, a rapid movement into it after um, September 11th, the reality of simultaneous conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then electoral cycles all really set up this this context where it becomes interesting for us to think about what were the actual effects of American um, policy and interventions at different points. So I think the the three different styles of, of policies or interventions that I really want to try to peel away what we can learn about are, are counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and security force assistance. Um, and we've seen kind of in this evolution and change, as you say, in terms of, of adjusting our perspective of what's achievable in terms of goals. We've seen kind of movement into and out of these different you know, varieties of interventions as well. So I wanted to start with counterterrorism in particular. Counterterrorism seems to be this effort of kinetic targeting that proficiency was really heavily developed first, first in Iraq and then you know, subsequently applied in Afghanistan and has been characteristic, was characteristic of the Bush administration early on with a light footprint in Afghanistan and then 
the Trump administration kind of pushed more towards a counterterrorism approach. What can we actually learn in terms of the effects or limitations of counterterrorism from the case of Afghanistan? Well, first of all, I think the three approaches or perspectives that you mentioned, so counterterrorism, development assistance, counterinsurgency, security force assistance are really blended. They're not, you know, discrete and separable, but they're overlapping and interconnected. So on counterterrorism, I think I think we have learned that counterterrorism targeting, so this is going after the terrorist leaders, basically, using direct action in particular, can have a limited effect. It can definitely have an effect, but that effect is limited. And it's limited to suppression or degradation of the terrorist organization. Uh, it does not lead to defeat. So there's a, there's a bit of a cap on the impact of this counterterrorism targeting uh, approach. It's most effective, therefore, in against terrorist organizations that are very hierarchical in structure. So you could top off, you could cut off the top of the organizational structure and have a big impact on the organization below. And on terrorist organizations that have iconic leadership, think here bin Laden, the top of Al Qaeda, right? However, the more decentralized and diffused the terrorist organizational structure, the less effective CT targeting is because those more diffuse, decentralized organizations can rapidly replace terrorist uh, leaders in a way that has us just trying to keep up, essentially, with the leadership structure. So even then, and we, we saw this, I think, most, most significantly against the, uh, in the campaign against al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, right, where we targeted the mid-grade and senior leadership, but saw a steady replacement of terrorist leaders eliminated by new faces uh, and really without much degradation of the organization itself. So I, I guess my first point is that CT targeting has a limit in terms of its effectiveness. Under Obama, the objective in Afghanistan, the key national objective in Afghanistan was stated as three Ds, okay, letter Ds, disrupt, dismantle, and eventually defeat al-Qaeda. So this became known as the three Ds. And what we learned is that CT strikes alone can move us into the first two. It can certainly disrupt and it can begin to dismantle. I mean, if you sustain a CT targeting campaign over time, you can begin to take out a sufficient number of senior and mid-grade leaders so that the organization struggles to replace them, right? That's the definition of dismantling. But it has not led us, it has not promised defeat of al-Qaeda. So even against the, uh, against the countries, our country's number one terrorist target, uh, the CT targeting campaign has had this sort of limited, constrained uh, effect. And the reason for that, of course, is that it's not just the leadership that drives these organizations. These organizations, these these extremist organizations have a certain, they're driven by a certain idea, right, by a certain ideology, which has roots deep into these extremist networks. So you can chop off the head of these these networks and still not uh, not actually defeat them. And until you get to those roots, you don't actually get to the third D. You don't actually get to defeat. The other point I'd make on this one is that we think about counterterrorism tactics in Afghanistan. We often applied CT tactics, 
not only against terrorist organizations, transnational terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, or more recently against the Islamic State branch in Afghanistan, but against the Taliban. And the Taliban, I believe, by definition, is more accurately described as an insurgent group rather than a terrorist network. Because certainly it's not a transnational terrorist network. I mean, no Taliban leader has ever struck or threatened to strike America from outside Afghanistan, beyond Afghanistan territory, right? And if you look at the aim of the Taliban, it is to replace the existing government in Afghanistan. And that's kind of the basic definition of insurgency. So we've applied CT tactics like night raids and strikes against leaders and so forth against an insurgent group. And that can have a limited effect, but it does not constitute the wholehearted counterinsurgency campaign. And we should not expect that those strikes, while part of a counterinsurgency campaign, they can't be the main effort. And I think for too long in Afghanistan, frankly, uh, we struck the Taliban as though we could decapitate it and it would fade away. But the Taliban are a deeply indigenous Afghan nationalist group, which has resonance, that has gravity among a significant portion of Afghan citizens, especially in the rural Pashtun areas. And you can't eliminate the Taliban by way of strikes. And then the last point on this is, of course, the Taliban senior leadership had safe haven outside of our counterterrorism area. So we could not, we did not strike only very, very few exceptions. We did not strike senior Taliban leaders who were in safe haven in Pakistan. So those we did strike tended to be middle grade, middle organizational leaders. And and so our, our CT tactics against the Taliban, I think, were uh, inherently limited. This distinction about the limits in particular of using counterterrorism tactics against an insurgent organization, I think, stand out relative to the, the current academic literature. So the, the academic literature focuses actually very much where you where you started about the nature of the institutionalization and hierarchy and structure of organizations, but doesn't necessarily as much talk about the end state or differences in the, the long term trajectory of organizations, specifically the difference between a terrorist organization and an insurgent organization. So I think that that, that observation in particular stands out as, as important for understanding the effects of a lot of the kinetic targeting that we that was done on the Taliban. You know, this gets really confusing, too, because, you know, when you look at the Taliban's tactics, and I, you know, my position is the Taliban are an insurgent group, but it, insurgent groups over the history of insurgencies have used terrorist tactics to achieve their aims. So the bombing of uh, civilian facilities, uh, suicide bombings on civilians, terrorist tactics like that. Certainly the Taliban have used those tactics, but that does not, I think, categorically put them at, make them more terrorists than they are insurgents. And one of my observations over the years in Afghanistan is that we have conflated terrorist organizations that can strike America with the Taliban who fundamentally have their goals centered on Afghanistan itself in an unhealthy way, and in a way that has masked uh, how we might approach these two uh, opponents. And that, that has not been a good thing for the American effort. You see this today. I mean, there's still, there's still those who argue that, look, the Taliban are terrible people. They, they use terrible tactics. And therefore, America has to remain in Afghanistan to counter these tactics. Well, the first part of that's true. 
They are uh, repressive. They use terrorist tactics, but they don't have aims against America outside of Afghanistan. And that's an important distinction. Very much so. I think this definition of terrorism and terrorist organizations have this symbolic political notion to them that often you know, attracts attention. I think the word counterterrorism is is more attractive to the American public, for instance, or even policymakers have chosen to use that word over kinetic targeting or um, something that, you know, really is an, an analogous application of force. But this terrorism is often seems to be more symbolic in the use of the word rather than reflecting the organization's either capabilities or intent. So right. that gives us an opportunity to, to shift in particular in thinking about the, the limitations on, on defeating insurgent organizations to, to this idea of counterinsurgency. And of course, we came out of the, the surge in Iraq with newfound confidence in, in opportunities presented by counterinsurgency doctrine. And then in, then seemingly the lessons, at least in the limited period of time of about 18 months of, of counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, didn't seem to yield quite the same results. So what can we learn about Afghanistan from the, the challenges in, in applying counterinsurgency doctrine? Or what did we learn about the limitations of counterinsurgency um, from the case of Afghanistan? Well, my experience is that we focused in Afghanistan in the counterinsurgency campaign. We really focused to a large extent on the military dimension of counterinsurgency. And we tended over time to become almost fixated on the military effort. This gets, you know, the coin of the realm here. The unit of measure is number of troops in Afghanistan, right? So the big debate is over, you know, do we have 30,000 troops? Do we have, do we surge and bring under Obama, bring it to 100,000? Now we're dealing with the, you know, the differential between sort of 12,000 and 4,000. But that all portrays this sort of fixation on only one dimension of counterinsurgency. And my observation would be that we, while fixated on the military dimension, as though we could defeat the Taliban militarily, tended to discount or underappreciate the importance of the other dimensions of counterinsurgency, which are political, which are diplomatic, so the regional dimension of a counterinsurgency uh, campaign, and, and have to do with good governance, combating Afghan government corruption, building the capacity of the Afghan government to actually govern outside of the large cities. And so we fixated on one dimension and poured a bunch of resources into one dimension, and we tended to discount the others. And the result is that the military effort could only take us so far. And I, I think later in this, this conversation, we're going to talk about the importance of building the Afghan security forces. That's another, that's a military dimension of counterinsurgency that doesn't have to do with direct combat operations as much as development of those forces. Even there, Another clearly military task, we tended to discount and focus more on our own combat operations, direct combat against the Taliban, than against these other probably more decisive, frankly, efforts of counterinsurgency. So we got a little bit fixated on one dimension of counterinsurgency, in my estimate, at the expense of the other dimensions. Look forward to, to talking about two of those dimensions in, in detail, as you said, security force assistance, and then also the development assistance and the economic dimension. Um, but b before we go there, I, this the fixation on the military dimension of counterinsurgency, um, when we, we zoom out away from, from the Department of Defense and, and you know more broadly into the national security apparatus, 
Is there an institutional explanation that's behind the, the fixation on the military component of counterinsurgency, or is it more individual personality based that's driven that, or, or what, what do you think is behind that, that fixation on military tool? So I'm not sure. Uh, these are, you know, here are a few impressions. This would require, I think, more considered examination, careful study. But, you know, our, our, we have in America this image of, of the American military being super capable and able to do any task assigned. And so I think there was a bit of that maybe overconfidence in the ability of this arm of the American government, the military, to deliver as promised. Then quite candidly, as military professionals, we ought to think about the degree to which we perhaps overpromised what was possible by military arms alone. And look, it hasn't in the in the nearly 20 years of American military experience. It's been quite recently that senior American military leaders have admitted in public that there's no military solution to the insurgency in Afghanistan. I mean, for a while, we denied it as an insurgency. Once we accepted it as an insurgency, I think we went through a protracted period, an extended period of imagining that we could defeat that insurgency on the ground by force of arms. And it's only recently that we've begun to turn the attention more on Afghan governance and the potential for diplomacy. Now, this is diplomacy with Pakistan and the most important Pakistan in the, in the region, but also sufficient attention to the potential to crack the Taliban insurgency by way of talks with the Taliban. And, you know, frankly, that effort, the outreach to the Taliban, not because we imagined that we would solve this by way of sitting with the Taliban and talking, right? But we did imagine that there might be some ability to degrade the insurgency by way of political means and maybe get to a point where Afghans could talk to Afghans about the future of Afghanistan, which seems to me and, and many others in government ultimately what we were after. So that effort began, outreach to the Taliban began in an exploration phase about 10 years ago. So the summer of 2010 as a supporting role in the Obama surge which was announced there at West Point in Eisenhower Hall in December of 2009. And this is the military surge that took us to 100,000 U.S. troops. But alongside those 100,000 troops, there was this opening to explore contacts with the Taliban and see if we could open another line of effort, which was this diplomatic outreach. And only recently has this resulted in what we were always aiming for, which is a room in a diplomatic setting where the Afghan government is talking to the Afghan Taliban about the future of Afghanistan, something only those parties can deliver. And that's different. For a while, we imagined we could deliver it. For a while, we imagined that we could defeat the Taliban and that we could do so by military means. So there's been a significant shift over the last number of years that has led to this point where we now have the right people in the room talking about the future of their country. I think this, if we put this in the, the language of the current academic literature that thinks about civil war and, and peace settlement, um, a lot of the, the thinking it describes warfare as, as information being revealed over time. And it kind of seems to me to follow the, this train of thought that you're describing in terms of we found out we couldn't defeat the Taliban militarily. We found out, you know, as information was revealed about the strength of the Taliban or the weakness of our 
policy levers that's kind of led to this progression in terms of information that's been revealed that impacts ultimately, you know, whether the peace settlement is successful or not. So, well, um, you know, another way to say that is, or another way to express that is simply that over the years, we have learned more about what's possible in Afghanistan. And while we went in perhaps with our biases towards military approaches, over time, we've come to appreciate that those are going to be limited. And they can take us so far, and they can maybe buy us time and space to allow the other dimensions of counterinsurgency to take hold. So what other dimensions? Development of the Afghan forces, political dimensions inside Afghanistan, political outreach to the Taliban, regional diplomacy, and so forth. But it wasn't always balanced. My main point is that we tended to overemphasize the potential and the promise, perhaps, of the U.S. military effort. That wraps up the first half of the interview. There's so much more story to tell, though, so be sure to listen to part two for more on how the U.S. has adjusted its strategies and what the future holds for Afghanistan. Check out the show notes for links to the SIGARS website. That's the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction that Ambassador Lute and Major Glubinski reference, and also for links to the Washington Post reporting on the Afghanistan papers. As usual, the views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music.